Good evening. I'll be preaching tonight from the book of Genesis. We'll be looking at the tail end of chapter 39, starting in verse 19, and we'll be going all the way through the entirety of chapter 40. So, fairly lengthy text. What I'm going to do is I'll, I'll start reading and read through the entirety of the text, and then I'll pray that God would bless us tonight as we look to his word. Starting in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We've had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head 
of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cupbearer, the cup, in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your word. Your word is a light unto our feet that shows us how we may live, how we may know the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, how we may honor you with our lips and with our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us great wisdom and understanding. Open up our eyes that we may be spiritually inclined to understand your word this evening. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. I would like to start tonight with a brief story. It's perhaps a story you've heard before. Um, perhaps not, it would be my guess. It's a story of a man named Captain Alan Francis Gardner. Captain Alan Francis Gardner was a somewhat well-known Anglican missionary, and he was one of the very first Protestant missionaries to a place known as Tierra del Fuego. If you don't know, Tierra del Fuego is the very southern portion of South America. It serves as a gateway into the most southern continent on the earth. And in 1850, he and six crewmates along with him, six other missionaries, landed for um, an extended time of mission work, church planting, opening up an opportunity for other pastors to come in. Well, it seemed that after one year, they suffered all sorts of problems just within the time span of one year. In his journals, he talks about how they encountered ship damage at sea, how they lost supplies at several times or even had supplies stolen from them that they desperately needed. He speaks about how they had opposition from various governments that opposed them. He even talks about how tribal peoples attacked them at different times. But the worst thing that they faced while they were there one year in Tierra del Fuego was the extremely harsh winters. It ended up that they got stuck in a cave during an extremely harsh winter, waiting for supplies to come that never came. One by one, Every member of that crew either died by sickness or by starvation. And from reading the journals that the captain uh, left behind, you know that he was the last one remaining. Those who found their bodies recorded this, that at the entrance of the cave that they were found on, Gardner had scribbled these words into the wall of the cave. My soul trusts still upon God. Similarly, in his journal, he wrote these words, But I am, by his abounding grace, kept in perfect peace, refreshed with a sense of my Savior's love and an assurance that, is all, that all is wisely and mercifully appointed. How should we look at a tragic story like that? I think we could come up with two basic kinds of answers. One, you could say, well, that seems like a very crazy, deluded um, foolish sort of man to do something crazy like that. That would be the world's response. Or you could say something else, that Gardner knew something that the world did not know. We know from his uh, journals that he was a man of great suffering, but we also know that he knew something beyond suffering itself. He knew the God of providence, the God of mercy, the God of all history who brings about all things. 
And I think that story is a wonderful window into looking at the life of Joseph itself. Because Joseph is a man who knows tremendous, tremendous suffering. If you look at his life, it's really a series of unfortunate events, one after the other. What starts with just a brotherly rivalry, that his brothers hate him, despise him, ends up becoming him being sold into slavery by those same brothers. He ends up working for a ruthless man named Potiphar. He's ended up uh, being accused of crimes that he does not commit. And ultimately, he ends up locked away in a bleak dungeon. So I want to ask, why do we have this story of Joseph and his series of unfortunate events before us? I think the answer is this. Because it shows us how we need to trust in the Lord. Not selectively, when it's very easy. Not when it's easy to do that but really to trust in the Lord in the darkest of times, as we see in Joseph's life. We do it when it's hard. I think that's what this text is really about, showing us how we can go about trusting in the Lord, especially when it is most difficult, when it is most hard. I would like to see our text under three points, three things we see Joseph doing in this text. First, Joseph is knowing the presence of the Lord. He knows what it is to have the Lord near in his darkest moments. Secondly, he is looking for the providence of the Lord. He doesn't fall into despair, but he continues to look at how God is acting in the world around him. And thirdly, he continues to trust in the plan of the Lord. He knows the presence of the Lord. He's looking for God's providence. And he's trusting in the plan of the Lord. Let's start with our first point, knowing the presence of the Lord. Our text opens up at the tail end of the Potiphar section. If you don't remember what happened there, I can summarize it very, very shortly for you. Joseph was uh, sold into slavery into Potiphar's house. He was the best servant. He was the most able servant, the most gifted servant. And time and time again, the wife of Potiphar... Uh, lusted after Joseph. She uh, enticed him to adultery time and time again. And after uh, swaying her advances time and time again, she eventually becomes very angry and accuses him of doing what she was trying to do herself. And as we come to our text, it opens up right after that, right after she has falsely accused Joseph of coming to her. And we see that Potiphar is furious he is angry with Joseph, his greatest servant. It says in verse 20, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. So we see Joseph's story just gets even worse. He's in his lowest point yet. He's found himself in the dark pits of a prison. And yet this text comes immediately with encouragement with one of the great gospel words, the word but, in verse 21. But the Lord was with him, was with Joseph, and he showed him steadfast love. We should note this is not commonplace love that the Lord is giving away. This is not cheap love that the Lord is pouring out on his servant Joseph. It is his covenant love. It's his steadfast love, his love that he pours onto those that seal them as his own. 
It's the same love that David spoke of in Psalm 63. He wrote, because your steadfast love is better than life. This love that is better than life itself is what God is pouring out to Joseph in his darkest moment. I think this shows us something very important. As Christians, we need to hold very closely to our hearts. That bad circumstances cannot and do not disprove God's love for his people. I'll say that again. Bad circumstances do not disprove God's love. Very often, we can think along these sort of terms. We think that difficulties in our life mean that God has forgotten us, or that he has left us, or that he is in some way powerless to do anything, or that he's simply ceased to love his people. But we see that this is not true here in the life of Joseph. Joseph is in his worst circumstances, and yet when he's at his lowest is when God shows his most amazing and gracious love to him. How is it that you and I can know whether God loves us? The way Joseph knows God loves him by his presence. Ultimately, it's through God's word itself. God's word promises us and assures us that God does indeed share his steadfast love with his people. It's God's word that speaks that absolute truth to us. And so, in our daily lives, if God's word tells us one thing, and our circumstances seem to suggest something else, which are we to choose? Well, as Christians, we always choose what God's word has told us. Even if our circumstances may scream to us otherwise, may uh, come into our mind as clear evidence that the Lord has forgotten his people, Christians, we know that that's not true. We know that the Lord shows steadfast love to his people. We see that here with Joseph. We also see that God's presence doesn't just mean his shower of steadfast love, but it is very practical in that it brings a great amount of favor for Joseph. We see this in verse 22, as Joseph is rising up the ranks very quickly while he's in prison. Likely, verse 22 is is describing a process of of years as he's gaining notoriety in prison and, and gaining responsibility in prison. We think that because overall, Joseph is going to spend 11 years either between Potiphar's house and his time in prison. So he's likely about half of that, at least, is spent in prison. So verse 22 is describing a long period. We see here that Joseph had character. He had uh, responsibility. He was someone that was uh, seen as a hard worker. He was someone that, that could be trusted. And as a result, he is put in charge. It says in verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. In other words, Joseph was so trustworthy. The Lord brought such a great favor to Joseph and his abilities and his skills that those in the prison basically said, well, we don't need to bother with Joseph. He's a good man. We can trust him. He'll do what he needs to do. We don't need to uh, bother him. We can let him have a sense of freedom. Now, what explains Joseph's success while in prison? Because that's a lot of success to have in prison, to not even be watched, to be trusted on that level. Well, on one level, we could say it's because Joseph is likable. 
It's because he's an honest, intelligent, hardworking, business-savvy kind of man. But I think we want to go on to a bigger level than just that. We want to say that it's because of the Lord himself, as the text implies for us, makes very, very clear, that the Lord made it succeed. In other words, Joseph is not the special one in this story, but his God is the special one. What a great reminder and picture of the humility that Christians need to carry with them throughout their days. I was convicted reading Galatians 6.3 and teaching on that recently in youth group. Paul writes, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What humility is needed by the average Christian? Joseph was nothing, but his God was with him, and that meant everything. Do you see how the presence of the Lord in this circumstance changes everything for Joseph? We see that God's presence is the difference between fear and calm, between anxiety and peace, between having despair in our darkest moments and actually having hope during those moments. I wonder if you've experienced something like this for yourself. Have you ever found yourself in a tremendously low situation, perhaps some of the worst situations you've ever faced in your life, and yet somehow knew that God was in control and that it was okay. Have you experienced that before? Have you ever been in really uncertain or frightful times, but you knew that God was in control? Those aren't normal experiences. Those aren't things that happen to normal people. Those are experiences that only happen to God's people. That is the fruit of what it's like when God is with his people. Joseph knows God's presence. Let's turn to our second point. Joseph is looking for the providence of God while he is there uh, in prison. One of the constant themes of the Joseph story is the mysterious providence of God. It's a sort of a fascinating case study of God's providence that, that here is this man and a whirlwind of events come about and he is taken here and there and everywhere and it all seems to be so dark and so bleak and seemingly random, and yet there's a plan behind it all. It all ends up working exactly as the Lord intended it. Not only that, but it ultimately brings God a tremendous amount of glory. So Joseph, he doesn't know at this moment what it is that God is doing. But he is looking, and that's the difference we want to notice. He is looking to see God in the events around him. And we see this particularly in the story of Cupbearer and Baker. I'll briefly walk us through the events of this story. In verse 1, we see that these two individuals, the Cupbearer and the Baker, have committed an offense against Pharaoh. Literally, the word in the Hebrew is that they sinned against Pharaoh. So right from the start, we see a comparison. Unlike Joseph, they actually did something. They actually deserve to be there, whereas Joseph is, is innocent. In verse 2, we're told that these individuals are not mere servants. They're not average Joes, but they're actually high-ranking officials. They're chiefs in Pharaoh's court. They're high-ranking officers, leaders, right? One way to think of it, although maybe not as a direct uh, correlation, would be if a president were to imprison members of his own cabinet, 
right? It would be all over the news. Everybody would know it. It would be a big deal. Well, that's what our text is telling us, is that these are big figures in Pharaoh's court. And we see in verses 3 through 4 that they've been tossed in prison, and they just so happen to come under the care of Joseph. The text tells us that he attends to them. He's ministering to them. He's responsible over them, and he is caring for them as they are put there. In verse 5, the story continues. And both of them in one night record that they have strange dreams. And then in verse 6, Joseph comes upon them, and it says that he sees them troubled. You might think they look wretched. They look pitiful. They look abundantly worried about what they have just seen in their dreams. Have you ever seen someone who's been up all night studying for an exam? Or someone who's up all night working on a big deadline that's coming up, and you see them in the morning, and they just look terrible. You can see the bags underneath their eyes. You can see they just look miserable. That's what Joseph sees in these individuals. He sees them troubled. And so he tells them, why are your faces downcast today? He says in verse 7. And they say to him, we've had dreams. And there's no one to interpret them. We've had these dreams, but there's nobody to interpret them. I think it might help us to know a little bit about the way that Egyptians look at dreams, because this helps us to, to peer into this text. You see, in the Egyptian worldview, dreams were not something that were just a silly thing that happened at night that we can joke about in the morning. Dreams were important. Dreams were seen as something that came from the gods themselves. That The, the gods, if they were to bless someone, they would give them a dream. And that dream could tell the future. They could tell a person's fortunes what might come about. But one thing that they always required was an interpreter, someone to tell you what the dream meant. And so in Egypt, there was a whole system of interpretation that developed from this. You had professionals, professional dream interpreters, right? And the whole systems of symbology, what certain elements and pictures and symbols in the dreams meant. And so you can imagine the predicament that cupbearer and baker see themselves in. They're in prison. They don't know if tomorrow Pharaoh is going to kill them or let them out. If he's going to let them free or if he's going to let them rot in prison for the rest of their days. They don't just not know that. They also have received dreams that could tell them the future. But they have no way of interpreting those dreams. Now, knowing something about Joseph, we'd think at this moment, Joseph should completely ignore them. Joseph should completely forget about this. After all, dreams have been a very, very bad thing for Joseph in the past. Perhaps you can recall this. In Genesis 37, it was dreams that got Joseph on his series of unfortunate events that brought him to today. In Genesis 37, he had dreams from the Lord, which showed his brothers bowing down before him. And no brother wants to hear that. So they hated him, despised him. It set off this chain of events. So when he hears that they've had dreams all on one night, we'd imagine that he'd want nothing to do with this. But that's not what we see in our text. No, Joseph knows 
that God has in the past spoken through dreams, and that God can, if he so chooses, speak through dreams. And he's looking at the situation. He's thinking, how in the world are these two important officials put under my care and given dreams both in one night that is causing so much trouble? He sees these things, and he knows that it can't be a coincidence. He knows that God is doing something. He knows that God is at work. And Joseph wants to be a part of that. He wants to see what it is that God is doing. He says to them in verse 8, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Here Joseph is putting the dreams in their right perspective. These are not dreams from the gods of Egypt. They're from the Lord. And they don't need an interpreter but rather the Lord himself is the interpreter. Here Joseph is appealing to God's wisdom, and he's doing it to pagans who know nothing about the Lord, who know nothing about God himself. And this, I think, is something we see very often in Joseph, that every time he opens his mouth, what comes out? He's talking about the Lord. He's speaking much of God, that he's regularly on Joseph's mind and his tongue. We see this in For example, Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife is tempting him and saying, come and lie with me, he says this, how then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? His first thought in that moment is, I dare not sin against my Lord. Joseph is always speaking of his God, every situation, not just here with Cupbearer and and Baker. I wonder if that is true of us as well. Do we speak much of God? Do we speak often of him, I mean? I'm not talking purely in in evangelistic senses. Certainly we should do that. But I mean in in our regular day conversation with, with our wives or husbands, with our kids, with our family members, with unbelievers as well as believers. What is it that comes out when we open up our mouth? I wonder if we speak more of God than we do of politics or movies, entertainment, or even something as small as the weather. What we see in this text is that if we're looking close for what God is doing, looking for his providence, then we will think much of him. And as a result, we will speak much of him. The story continues, and in verses 9 through 11, the cupbearer recounts his dream for Joseph. We finally get to that point, and... Joseph's interpretation is favorable. I won't get into the the details of the dream itself, but rather just his conclusion. He tells Cupbearer, that dream that you have had is going to be good for you. Pharaoh will restore you. He says in verse 13, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And then in verses 14 and 15, Joseph gives a, a personal appeal to him. Did you catch that when we read it? He essentially says, When you get restored to your office, remember me. When you're in Pharaoh's good graces, think back to me and speak well of me that I don't deserve to be here. Help me get out. He gives his appeal. And then, of course, Baker is very excited. It went very favorably for Cupbearer. I wonder if it will go favorably for me. And he gives his interpretation. And it's not favorable. Joseph tells him very, very plainly that he will die, that Pharaoh, he says, will lift up your head from you. You will be hanged, and the birds will eat you as you are hanging. 
Joseph is not holding back the truth. I think we could simply say that. He's honest, even though it is a very difficult thing for him to say and to speak in that moment. We might want to just ask this question, what is Joseph doing with this account of Baker and cupbearer? What is he looking for? What's he trying to accomplish? And I think we can simply say this. What we see is that he is keen to look for God's providence. He's looking for how God is working, and he sees this moment with cupbearer and baker, and he says, I think God is at work there. And where God is at work is where Joseph wants to be. Let's turn to our third point more briefly, that Joseph is trusting in the plan of the Lord. Uh, What's the outcome out of all of this? What's the point of these dreams? What's the point of whether or not Baker or Cupbearer will be killed or whether they will be hanged? What happens? Well, the first thing we see is that the interpretations prove true. We're told in verse 22 that the Baker is indeed hanged. His crimes were egregious enough. He would not fall back into Pharaoh's good graces. But the opposite is true of the cupbearer. In verse 20, we're told that he is restored exactly as it was interpreted by the Lord. And so we might think, well, this, this is good news. The story is going to end well. Things are looking bright for Joseph at this point. Right now, the cupbearer can simply say to Pharaoh, I know this great guy. This great guy in prison, his name is Joseph. He doesn't deserve to be there. He knows the Lord. He is a wise man and can interpret dreams, right? We think at this point that the light is at the end of the tunnel, that Joseph will be free. And yet you get to the end of the text, and what do you find? Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, I think we could say that, he's, that this is him actually forgetting, I mean, slipping off of his mind, But I think it's more likely that cupbearer is not truly forgetting. He is intentionally forgetting. That it isn't very convenient to ask for a favor at this point. You've just been brought back from death itself. I wouldn't go to Pharaoh and try to pull some weight there, try to pull a favor there. And so he's probably conveniently forgetting about Joseph, just saying, I'm just going to forget about him. Now imagine what that's like in Joseph's situation for a moment. To see the light at the end of the tunnel. To know that there was a way out. Hoping each day that that cupbearer would come in and point at Joseph and say, that's the man, Pharaoh. This is a good man. You want him out of prison. And then day by day, nothing happens. It never shows up. We know from reading further into Genesis that Joseph is going to stay there for at least another two years in the pit, in prison. We could simply ask the question, why? I think Joseph has no idea why. Why is it that he has to sit there and continue to rot in a prison while it seems like hope is being snuffed out? Well, we know the answer. We know that in two years, Joseph is going to be let out. He's going to be led out specifically to help Pharaoh. At the most opportune moment when Pharaoh needs his dreams interpreted, then Joseph will be led out. And that, once again, leads to another series of events where Joseph rises in power and eventually leads to the protection of God's people in the day of famine. But if he gets out now, none of that's going to happen. Do you see how all of this is happening exactly according to the plan of the Lord? 
We see that God works all things by his plan, and he does it on his timeline. He does it by his own timeline. He is the one who directs history, he directs events, and he directs lives, and he does it, not you and I. We simply do not, do, we simply do not control that. So what do we learn from this text? I think we learn a few things that I'd like us to dwell on. First, God's plan may involve suffering. We see that very, very clearly, both in the story I told earlier with the captain as well as with Joseph. But that does not mean that God's plans are bad. In fact, when we're suffering, it does not mean that God is somehow failing or that he's losing or that the world is winning or that he has forgotten his people in any way. We also know that God's plan is bigger than any one of us. It is beyond us. And we humbly have to admit, we don't know what God is doing very often. What do we know? We know that God is good, as Pastor Wegner told us earlier. We know that God is good and that his plan is good. We know that he works all things for his glory as well as our ultimate good in the end. We know that God has promised to be with his people. We also know that God is unstoppable. Even the most fierce schemes of the devil cannot stop what it is that God plans to do. That's what scripture tells us. And Christian, that has to be enough for us. That has to be enough for us to trust in our heavenly father. Do you trust him knowing those simple but powerful truths? Do you trust your heavenly father? Are you able to sing truly with your heart as the, the great hymn goes, whatever my God ordains is right, and really mean it when we say whatever. We don't know what God is going to do, but whatever he does, it's going to be right, is it not? Are you able to agree with Paul when he so beautifully writes in Romans chapter 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we know that, then we know enough to trust in God each and every day. Let's pray.